Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Lord, your word says you gave. And we exist because you are a giving God. And we are here this morning because you gave. And we have, as we prayed before, faith and hope and love because you gave. And you give and you give more and you you are ceaseless and boundless, Lord, limitless in your giving. Would that we be like you. This morning as we study through these words and seek to understand... Father, I pray that you would give one more thing to us today, and that is revelation of understanding of your word. Would you give that to us, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began uh, the walk of the worthy, at least in our study. As we came into chapter 4 of this wonderful, this marvelous heavenly letter from Paul to and through the Ephesians, We come to the last section, the last half of the letter, the practical half, and chapters 4 and 5, he's dealing with what we've called the walk of the worthy, or as I prefer to call it, the walk of the made worthy, which is really more the reality, isn't it? We have been made worthy. And as I said last week, it's not that you make the calling worthy, it's that the calling makes you worthy. You know, we come to the table to receive at the table, we don't bring something to the table. So in this walk of the made worthy, there's something we discover pretty quickly as followers of Jesus. And it is that God never called us to walk alone. He never set us out on this journey, never intended that we brave the winds and the waves of the world as solitary beings. Never intended that we recklessly walk, that we are unprepared or ill-equipped. No, this is a gifted walk. He says walk, but He gives all that is necessary for us to walk this walk. And when we talk about walking as worthy people, or walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, He gives everything necessary that we might be able to do that. He enables the walk. He gifts the walk. And we looked at this last week, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, he talks about his immeasurable gift of grace. In John 1.16, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So we begin the walk covered in his grace, overwhelmed by his grace, but then more gifts are given. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries, And the same Lord Jesus. There are varieties of effects of the same God who works all things in all. So He gifts us with grace and He pours out gifts and ministries and effects. 
And then in verse 8, we're told, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So there are more gifts. And we're going to talk about those gifts this morning. But when he ascended on high, I love verse 8. In fact, it sounds to me like the aftermath of an epic battle. He ascended on high. You know, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Here's the commander ascending in pomp and royalness and and, and glory. A, A host of captives are led out. Gifts are given to the people. You might call those, we would call them the spoils of war. First time we see the spoils of war is an interesting story. You have to travel all the way back 4,000 years to Genesis 14, where we know that a war broke out in the Valley of Sedim. That's the Valley of the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. So in that region of Israel, this huge war called the War of Kings, that was an early world war, four kings against five kings, duking it out in this battle. And as part of the battle... Abram's nephew Lot was taken captive, carried off. Well, Abram discovers this, and so he calls together 318 of his trained servants, a crack squad, to go on a guerrilla raid to actually fight against these kings. He wasn't otherwise involved in the battle until Lot got drawn into it, his his, his, uh, nephew. So off Abram goes with his guerrilla squad and he rescues Lot. He defeats four kings. He brings back the spoils of war. That's the first time we hear about spoils of war. Carries back all of this and we see it in recorded history. Abram rescuing and bringing back the spoils. Now keep that in mind because what's interesting is Paul's quote in Ephesians 4.8 comes directly from a psalm that is a psalm of victory. It is a psalm of military triumph. Turn back there and let's look at it. Keep your finger in Ephesians 4 and go to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. The psalms are kind of in the middle of your Bible, roughly to the left. So look for them there. There's 150 of them, so they're pretty easy to find. Psalm 68, a a psalm of military triumph. Let's just read this through. Listen to it. Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise. I just like that right there. We can stop there and have a whole teaching just on those three words. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire. So let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before Him. A father of the fatherless, and a judge for the widows, is God in His holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God. When you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Are you getting a picture of what's happening here? 
This is not only triumphant in a march, but it is a march through the wilderness, arriving at Mount Sinai, which quakes at the presence of the Lord. You know the march that's being talked about. This is Moses leading the people through the wilderness and recounting the glorious victory of God as he led his people out of captivity. Captivity, captives you might call them. Led them through the wilderness all the way to Mount Sinai. And there the mountains shook. The people were afraid. The law was given. Marvelous things took place. And then verse 9, You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. And your creatures settled in it. And you provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. Verse 11, the Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. And note this, that word host is army. So even the women are a great army. Can I hear an amen from the gals on that one? Right. Oh, the women are a great army. Where are we, host? There it is. Verse 12. Kings of armies flee. And they flee. And she who remains at home will divide what? Spoil. Spoils of war. Verse 13. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you're like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. And that's just speaking of peace and prosperity that follows the mightiness of this triumphant march of God that you would come after the war into the spoils and into this time of of peace, into this time of rest. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Verse 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. And by the way, that is Jerusalem. So what he's saying when he says a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan, in verse 15 he's describing a mighty mountain peak, and then he says, but God has decided to dwell in Jerusalem. You know, when you visit Israel today, When you walk the streets of Jerusalem up and down the paved pathways, what you discover or what you realize is it doesn't really look like a mountain. There are valleys there, but they're shallow valleys. Even the Valley of Kidron between the Mount of Olives and Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. We talk about Mount Moriah. You can't even hardly see it. It's more of a ridge, really, that runs through Jerusalem. Mount of Olives to the east... Mount Scopus to the north, Mount Zion to the west of it all. They're all mountains, but they're hard to really see because the topography is is interesting and it's covered with now homes and buildings and the new uh, buildings, the newer part of Jerusalem and the old city. Of course, if you're down below and you're going up to Jerusalem, you always go up and it's quite an ascension to go up to Jerusalem, but you don't really see it when you're there. There are other mountains much bigger, much mightier. I remember the first time being in the Valley of Megiddo and looking around at the mountains of Israel. All these great mountains. I live in Washington State. Let's talk about mountains. Okay, we've got Mountain Rainier. You know, Mount St. Helens. We saw the side of that blown out in 1980. We have Mount Baker. Those are mountains, man. And that's the point. 
so is the mountain of Bashan, a great peak. And yet, and yet, where did God choose to dwell, to put his name? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. President Trump's going to Jerusalem. And he'll pray at the Western Wall, apparently. I hope God does a work there. I'm still waiting on Trump to fulfill his promise. I've said this now several times, that he will move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Why is that, Rick? Because surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Well, verse 17, the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. And how was he at Sinai? Earth shaking, powerful, glorious and great. Verse 18 then, well, hold off on verse 18. So this psalm, as we see walking through it, it, it recounts the victorious march of God, leading his people from Egypt through the wilderness 3,500 years ago. But a more careful read, and you realize it also recounts David's conquest to capture Jebus, that is Jerusalem, from the Jebusites, to become the stronghold of Zion, the city of David, and that would be 3,000 years ago. But it's further believed that Psalm 68 is also a tribute song for when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem to its new home on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And all of this covered in this moving and powerful, triumphant Psalm of David. But here's where it really gets interesting. This Psalm is the one to which Paul turns in his explanation of certain gifts. The gifts I said that we were going to talk about this morning, and we will eventually. Certain gifts for a triumphant walk. Certain gifts for truly a a military, in a spiritual sense, a military might for the people of God. Gifts that are given. Now look at verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And again, the psalm speaks historically and prophetically of Jerusalem. But the Spirit, through Paul, and you can go back to Ephesians 4, the Spirit reveals that these victorious verses are not just historic, they are prophetic. And they speak about much more than an earthly conquest. Psalm 68 speaks about something far more significant than Moses could have imagined. Than David even realized as he wrote. Something so absolutely significant. And what is that? The ascension of Jesus Christ. That is what Psalm 68 is truly about. The ascending Lord, the ascendant Jesus, the ascension of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, from Mount of Olives and up into heaven. The ascension. When he ascended on high, verse 8, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth and he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The ascension of Jesus from the Mount of Olives back unto the heavenlies 
Luke 24, 51 tells us, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And interestingly, Jesus being caught up, in fact, Revelation 12, verse 5 says he was caught up. And it's that word harpazo. He was raptured. Now, Paul, when he talks about our being caught up, says it's in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, so fast. And yet, when Jesus was caught up, it wasn't so fast. It wasn't just zing, and he was gone. In fact, Acts 1, verse 9 says he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. I can't even imagine that. I mean, they thought he was awesome before. They thought he was marvelous. They had seen the miracles. They they had seen the walking on the water. The marvelous things of Jesus. And they saw him resurrected from the dead. They realized that he appeared to them in a room where the door was shut. I mean, amazing moments. But in that moment, to see him lift off. And be drawn up into the heavens. And disappear into the clouds. I can't even imagine the moment it says as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? Well, where would you be looking? No offense to the angels, but I'd be looking up, mouth hanging open and everything. This Jesus, they said, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He went up, he's going to come down. And Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 tells us when he comes down, he's coming back to the exact same location, Mount, Mount, the Mount of Olives. Where he will set foot on the Mount of Olives in in glory and in splendor. But to ascend, Paul tells us, he had to first descend. And not just from heaven to earth. And there's all kinds of commentary on this section of scripture. I think the section speaks for itself. I think it explains itself. And I think Paul's language is absolutely clear. He doesn't say he just descended from heaven to earth. He says he descended to the lower parts of the earth, which is a euphemism for Hades. Sheol. That that's where he descended. In the time between his crucifixion and resurrection, between his death and his return to the land of the living, he descended into Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew name for the place of the dead. Hades is the Greek name for it. And understand that we're not talking about hell here. The old creed is wrong. When it says he descended into hell, no. No, you see, because the Bible very clearly describes hell as eternal and final and a place of deep, dark judgment Hades is described differently biblically. Hades and Sheol, same place, awaiting place. Psalm 16, verse 10. David said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David underwent decay, but will not be abandoned to Sheol. But the Holy One, Jesus, did not even undergo decay Resurrecting three days later. Isaiah 26 verse 19 says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake! Shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. 
Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 tells us that Abraham himself considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Raise them from where? Sheol. Raise them from the lower parts of the earth. That was the Hebraic view, by the way. The Jewish view, all the way leading up to Jesus, was that when you died, you went to Sheol, to this waiting place, and there you waited. Is that the way it is now? Well, hold your pale horses just a minute. In Luke chapter 16... And we've been over this. In fact, when we studied Luke somewhat recently, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, we recognize something remarkable. Jesus speaks as He pulls back the curtain on death and gives a valuable insight. Helps us to see a little bit more of what this Sheol is about, this this Hades. He talks about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Both died. Both went into Hades, Sheol, a waiting place. We understand from reading that that it had a paradise site called Abraham's bosom. And Abraham is there. And Lazarus, the poor man, ends up there, tended to and loved and in a good place. The rich man ends up in the torment site. And in between this paradise and this torment, Luke 16, read this, read this story, which is, by the way, not a parable. He never says it's a parable. And in talking about this, it's the only story of Jesus that he tells, if you want to list it among the parables, it's the only one where he gives names to those who are involved. Speaks very clearly about what happens here. There is paradise, there is torment, and there's this great gulf in between, a great chasm that is literally impassable. And up until Jesus came, that was Hades, that was Sheol, that's the way it was. And then the crucifixion happened. And then redemption happened and it changed everything. So that now when someone dies in Christ, understand this, these are words of comfort that come straight from the scriptures. When a person dies in Christ, yes, the body goes into the ground, but the spirit goes immediately home to be with Jesus. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And Paul says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. This is not something you see with your eyeballs. It's something you know with your heart. He says, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, he says, we believe that the Lord will bring with Him those who have died. Wait a minute. If if the body is buried, but the Lord is going to bring with Him those who died, where are their spirits? You don't bring someone with you who isn't with you. Right? I love these really obvious things that we can understand. So he's going to bring with him the spirits of those who have died. And that's what happens if you die in Christ. Now, furthermore, the early church fathers who came on the heels of the apostles, they associated Ephesians 4, that is, Jesus who ascended, and also he who descended into the lower parts of the earth, again, euphemistic for Hades, They associated that with 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Listen to this, verse 18 and 19. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, 1 Peter 3.19, He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. It's one of those interesting verses. You read that and you're about to go on to verse 20 and you go, what? Huh? And in the early church, it was understood what he was talking about, what Peter talked about, what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. And it gives further explanation to what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and where? Under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There aren't creatures writhing around in the earth's core. Under the earth, the lower parts of the earth, a very clear biblical euphemism for the place of the dead. Some are in heaven. Some are on earth and some are under the earth. Is that what you're saying? You got it. And under the earth is again the lower parts of the earth. Now, that being understood, when Jesus descended, He did a few things. He wasn't just resting for three days. He was active. I love that. That He descended and He not only made proclamation to disobedient spirits. What's that all about, Rick? We'll get to First Peter in a you know, matter of years at least. We'll talk about that. But he made proclamation to disobedient spirits and he did something else. Ephesians 4 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. What does that mean? All those who died in faith, all who died in faith up to before the crucifixion, all those awaiting the full and final payment of their redemption. Captivity captive were led out by Jesus at that time. Because the redemption was paid, no more waiting. You know that's a beautiful thing about redemption? That once you're redeemed, you wait no longer. A lot of people on earth are still waiting for redemption. They don't even realize it. But when you come to Jesus, when you when you accept Him as Lord, when you say, I want to walk with you, Lord, redemption is immediate and the waiting is over. And so all of these were redeemed The price was paid. And so when He ascended, after He descended and led out the captive spirits of the faithful, what then happened? Well, my only understanding at this point is that He shut down the paradise side of Hades because it was unnecessary. Because when you die in faith in Jesus now, your spirit goes home to be in the Lord. And there's no reason for paradise Hades. There is yet the other side. But paradise has been emptied out as Jesus led captive a host of captives. Now, stay with me, because none of what I've said is the point of this morning's teaching. (laughs) What's the point, Rick? He talks about giving gifts. And he's talking about gifts. Look again, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, wonderful, and he gave gifts to Men. He gave gifts, made proclamation, led out the captives, and he gave gifts. Remember, we talked about the spoils of war. That's what happens when you conquer. There are gifts that follow. And he gave gifts, and there are four of them 
that he lists here now. He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, stay with me. I know some of you heard, wait, 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 wait. He said four gifts. I've always understood there were five gifts. We'll get there. But he gives these gifts, and these are what we could call positional gifts for the body today. And remember what we talked about before, that we all started out in this walk of the worthy, the walk of the made worthy. We started out with the immeasurable gift of God's grace. That's where it begins. You are gifted with grace. And then he begins to shower spiritual gifts upon people. And ministries and effects, talents and abilities, he pours out and he designs us that we might all be involved as this functioning body together, every part doing its part. By the blessing of His Spirit, He pours out all of these gifts. And now we're told, and there are even more gifts, there are, some call them leadership gifts. Because Jesus established these gifts for His church to manage the rest of the spiritual gifts. That's why they're given. At least in the church setting. The gift of grace, spiritual gifts, and then positional leading gifts to manage the gifts that have been given. Now, I'm going to try really hard to step on some toes this morning on both sides of the understanding of what all this means because this verse is called upon by many to make uh, claims about all kinds of things. So understand, some say that both apostles and prophets as listed here were unique and non-repeatable gifts. Unique and non-repeatable. That they don't continue to this day that they were among the apostles, that they were first century, and with the death of the last apostle, which would have been John sometime at the end of the first century, maybe beginning of the second, that once that took place, all of those leadership gifts, well, at least two of them, apostles and prophets, ceased. Some claim that. There are others who say, no, 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 these are present-day offices, for the church, apostles and prophets, and some claim, especially that apostolic mantle, that I am an apostle sent by the Lord. You know, from the Catholic Pope to the Mormon president, apostleship is claimed. To some charismatic revivalists who say, I am an apostle having been sent by the Lord. Now, before I say any more, wherever you land on this... Be careful of anyone seeking title or position. Because it seems to me that I recall Jesus saying that the highest position in the church is that of servant. That the greatest is the lowest. The humility. That that is what we aspire to. Not titles. Not names. And not offices. Jesus said in Matthew 23.6, Oh, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Let me just tell you, I hate the place of honor. What do you mean? Well, we had a a potluck here. The last church potluck that we had here in the uh, sanctuary, and we put out all the tables and everything, and there was a table over here to the far right, and we got our food, and Cheryl just went and sat down. So I went and sat down beside her, and no one would sit with us. (laughs) And it was lonely. And we're over there having our little hot dogs and weeping quietly together. 
And we and some people came up at a couple of different times saying, could we interrupt you for a minute, Pastor? And I'm like, dude! <laughs> so next time, I'm going to come sit at your table wherever it is. This whole title and position thing, it's absolute silliness. It is of man and it is not of God. So please be my friend. <laughs> They love the places of, of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. And they love being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your Servant, And so it is to service, not status, that we have been called to walk worthy. It is to ministry and not to moniker that we have been called. So, were the apostles and prophets unique and non-repeatable? Were they first century or are they for today? Well, let's think this through because when Peter sought to replace Judas, Judas who had hung himself, When he sought to make that replacement and gathered there in Jerusalem prior, by the way, to receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they drew lots to see who it would be, fell on Matthias. But listen to what he said, Acts chapter 1 verse 22, he said, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter set a standard. He said, if you're going to be an apostle, you have to have been among us with Jesus and a witness of his resurrection. Now, Paul agreed with that. He placed great emphasis on an apostle having actually and visibly seen Jesus in his resurrection. First Corinthians nine, verse one. Am I not free? He says, am I not an apostle? And then to underscore it, he says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? But there was even more definitive proof of the unique position of the twelve apostles, and that is Revelation 21.14. The wall of the city, New Jerusalem, had twelve foundation stones, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. It's not like, you know, some of those areas of, of construction where they put bricks on the ground, like, like, like the ground between Disneyland and California Adventure. All these little paving stones, and every one of the paving stones has a name of someone who contributed to the paving stone being put down. Well, that's not the wall of New Jerusalem. Doesn't matter how much you contribute, your name ain't going on the wall. Sorry! But the twelve apostles will all be named on the wall. The eleven... I don't believe Judas' name will be there. Personally, I think it will be Paul. Some will say, no, it's Matthias. And we can have that argument another time. And you can be wrong and, and I can still love you. And we've you know, dealt with that kind of thing before. So, you have to have seen the Lord. And the twelve, there is something unique and unrepeatable about them. Clearly exclusive apostolic positions. And I think that's undeniable. The original twelve minus, minus Judas plus Paul. <laughs> But before you spread out your toes with too much comfort, get this. The Bible refers to others as apostles. In fact, if we add up all the apostles named in the Scriptures, it is more than 12. Barnabas, 
along with Paul in Acts chapter 14, verse 14, is called an apostle. In Romans 16, verse 7, you're going to love this. Paul calls Andronicus and his, we think, wife Junius, because Junius is a female name and it's in the feminine. He calls these two outstanding among the apostles. Is Junius, was Junius an apostle? Some would argue that. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul refers to James as among the apostles. And the phrase among doesn't mean that he hangs out with them. He lists James. He names James as an apostle. This is not James the apostle who had been killed by the sword. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was no apostle. In fact, didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. So there are more apostles than just the twelve named in the Scriptures. Just for fun, uh, there's one other. Jesus Himself is called an apostle. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a whole heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Amazing. He's both high priest on the Jewish side and He is apostle on the New Testament side of things. He's both. So, okay. Well, Rick, you're confusing me. Is, is this gift of apostle for the church today or not? My opinion? No. And yes, that it is both. But understand very clearly, there are the apostles and there are apostles. There are the twelve, twelve capital A's and a whole lot of lowercase a's. And that kind of simplifies the whole thing. There is a unique and non-repeatable authority of the office of apostle, the twelve. And so we pay attention to the apostles' teaching, do we not? As we study the New Testament. But there's also not just the office non-repeatable, but there is the operation of apostolic gifting. Office, the twelve. Operation among us as gifts given to the church. The word apostle is the Greek apostolos, and it means messenger or sent one. Very simple. And so you might jot this down of the gifts we're talking about. The apostle is, that's the sending gift. The apostle is the one who is sent. The sending gift. We might call them church planters. We might say, oh, the missionaries, they're apostles. Then Mark and Christine Landis are looking at a mission in Baja. I don't even know if you all knew this, but we're looking at sending them. They are going to be sent. That's an apostolic thing that's going to happen if they are then sent down to Baja for tacos and sun (laughs) suffering for Jesus sent ones apostolos these are those who are gifted to the church to go for the kingdom they're the ones that are sent out it's not the official title that matters again it is the operation of being sent that is still in effect today absolutely in effect today because we see it happening today don't go for the title you know it does make me leery when someone claims apostleship themselves i am an apostle of the lord <laughs> okay whatever <laughs> what about prophets well this one's a little easier prophet prophetus It's one who speaks the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, tells us that the mystery of Christ has now been revealed, Paul says, to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. 
So Paul refers to those who had the prophetic gifting who were prophets, and I would say even with a capital P, in the first century. John the Baptist was the last of the Hebrew prophets. Then Jesus, he spans both, having been both a Hebrew prophet, but also a prophet of the church, the first among those of the church. A prophet in both directions, pre and post resurrection. But then in the book of Acts, you have the prophet teaching group up at Antioch, which included Paul and Barnabas and some others. So there were prophets among them. You have, you have Silas. Silas, Acts chapter 15 verse 32. My grandson Silas was a prophet. You have Philip's four daughters, Acts 21 9, who all were prophets. And known as such. Uh, Acts 21 verse 10, you've got Agabus, who was the prophet. So there were prophets active and at work in the early church in the first century. Are they still effective for today? And again, I would say yes. Yes. Why would you say that? Because prophet is the speaking gift. The speaking gift. A prophetess is one who simply speaks the word of God by the Spirit of God. One who speaks out the truth of the Word of God. And they will speak the Word. And the words that the Spirit inspires to be spoken will always be in perfect sync with Holy Scripture. So you can know. Someone comes along with a Nostradamus kind of a prophecy and it, A, it doesn't even come true. And B, it doesn't align with Scripture. That is not a prophet. Okay, that's a guesser. And it's a completely different thing. There are those inspired by the Spirit of God to speak the Word of God, and it always pertains to, aligns with, and supports Holy Scripture. The prophet, this is one who comes along with comforting conviction. You know, and, and you know you've been prophesied to, if you will, when a, someone speaks a Word of God to you, and, and it is convicting. It's like, oh man, but you're not offended necessarily. You're comforted in it. Paul describes it this way, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. And by the way, the very fact that Paul explains the one who prophesies in 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that the gift of prophet is a gift for the church today. Well, how can you say that? That was in the first century. It was in the church age. And are we not still in the church age? And so he describes this, edification, exhortation, consolation. It says one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul says, you know, I, I wish you all spoke in tongues. I really do. But even more that you would prophesy. Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. So again, it's the speaking of the Word of God, and the Word of God strengthens, and the Word of God blesses. And when the Word of God is spoken, we are stronger for the journey. The walk is better. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, the third one. An evangelist, a euangelistus, is simply a herald of the gospel, a herald of the good news. You have the sending gift, the speaking gift, and with the evangelist, you have the saving gift. The saving gift. This is the one who is absolutely intent on seeing people brought to salvation in the name of Jesus. They're the ones who just won't shut up. 
Everywhere they're going, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know the type. They can't speak a sentence without spilling the gospel all over you. And people are getting saved. And you know the, the evangelist gift, it's, it's remarkable because this is the person who might not be that well spoken. Who might not be a glorious intellectual. This, this is someone who may, who may just kind of be your average person. But it's like when they talk to someone about Jesus, boom, salvation happens. Because it's a gifting by the power of God. And I believe that we need to be more intentional with this gifting, all of us, to pursue the gifting of the evangelist, to be evangelical people. And I've said before, evangelical is not a voting block. Evangelical is a lifestyle to which we have all been called and we need to pray for more evangelism. And for more evangelists, Matthew 9.37, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Workers, evangelists. So that's three of the four gifts, and now we get to the last of the four, the pastor-teacher. Why are you calling those together? Hang with me. Notice that he says that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, but he doesn't say and some as pastors and some as teachers. He says and some as pastors and teachers. And the the construction of the language leads many, I'm among them, to believe that what is being described here is the poimenos kai didaskalos, which is the shepherd teacher. The word kai is in between, and that's the and, but it's the shepherd and teacher. It's, I believe, one gift. Now, you can separate the two out, that's fine, no problem, do that if you want to. But here's the thing, I take these two together for two reasons. One I gave you, the Greek construction, seems to pair these two words. But more importantly, I can't say this with more conviction. The teaching is the pastor's primary role. To be called a pastor is to be called a teacher. To teach the Word of God is absolutely vital to the pastor. It's what we're called to do. And we see this throughout the Scriptures again and again. John 21, Peter is called to shepherd his people. And how does Jesus tell him to do that? Well, He gently restores Peter... Remember, he denied three times, and so three times Jesus would say to Peter on the beach in the Galilee, he would say, oh, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter says, I like you. I really like you. And then finally Jesus says, okay, Peter, do you like me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I like you. But listen to this. Each time he gives Peter a directive, three directives, and here they are. John twenty-one fifteen. he says, if you like me, He says, feed my lambs. He says, if you like me, verse 16, shepherd my sheep. And then finally he says, Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. You know that shepherding is sandwiched between feedings. Pun intended. Now again, if you want to separate out a pastor-teacher as two distinct gifts, okay, just be sure, understand, that the pastor must remain intent on the feeding of the people of God. The feeding of the flock. And the reason why the church is weak today is because pastors are not teaching. 
pastors are offering snacks. Because they have forgotten, they've bought into the lie, they've been told that your primary role is not teaching. You just do that, you shake and bake for 15 or 20 minutes on a Sunday, and you're done with that, and then you pastor. My friends, pastoring is teaching. Because the feeders are the leaders. The shepherds are the ones who make sure that the sheep are fed. And Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And I'll tell you the primary thing that we as a fellowship ought to do if we do anything is teach the Word. And be in the Word. And know the Word of God. This is not a book put together by men. This is the inspired Word of God that makes the walk worthy. It's part of the gifts that have been given to us. Now, two last things to note on these four or five gifts. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and the pastor teacher. Understand, first of all, all of these gifts are word gifts. They're all word-based gifts. All of them are engaged in the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. The sending, the speaking, the saving, and the shepherding. They are all with the Word of God. And Paul elevates these gifts above all the other gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, that is those who are sent. Second, prophets, that is those who are speaking forth the word of God. Third, teachers. Then, and the word then there in the Greek is interesting because now we're coming to a different section, a different kind of gifting. He says after that, really, miracles. And then after that, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Why is that? Because, understand this, the word of God, whether sent Spoken, saving, or shepherding always glorifies God and not man. When the Bible is opened, God is glorified. When the Bible is set aside and I share about my life, guess who's glorified? Right here. This is about the glory of God. This is His program, His church, His reality. It's what He's doing that we're involved in. It's not what we're doing. So all of these gifts are word-based gifts. But secondly, note this about these gifts. You don't sit back and go, okay, well, I'm not one of them, so good to go? Lunchtime? My friends, we are all sent to speak and save and shepherd. All of us. So whether you have the title or the position, whether it seems like a capital letter or or a lowercase letter, makes absolutely no difference. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are sent to speak and save and shepherd. We are all to speak out the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 27, love this verse, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Speak the Word of God. Share the Gospel message of our salvation. Well, we have one little problem left to solve. We'll do this quickly. In Ephesians 4.8, Paul says Jesus, note this, He gave gifts to men. I love it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the gifts. But you may have caught it. 
In Psalm 68.18, it says that He received gifts from among mankind. Uh-oh. Did Paul misquote? Did Paul twist that verse just for his own purposes in writing to the Ephesians? Because my pastor has done that before, not here. <laughs> Did he proof text and, and just change the wording just slightly from receive? Because Psalm 68, the prophecy is that he received gifts from among mankind. And here we have that he gave gifts. So what's the deal here? Well, on a technical level, both gave and received, both of those two words appear in the Jewish Targums. The Jewish Targums are the oral tradition. How, how Scripture for a long time was passed down until the oral was finally translated or written down on the page. And so there were oral traditions that continued. If you've heard of the famous Masoretic text of the Hebrew Scriptures which is considered absolutely authoritative. The Masoretic text was written based on the oral traditions of the Jews, the oral speaking of the Word of God, Genesis through Malachi. And the Masoretic text, if you hold it up against the Hebrew texts and those other written texts that came long before it, because the Masoretic came probably five, 600 A.D., if you go back and compare it, the accuracy is astounding that the oral tradition was maintained and really does line up with the Word of God. So in the oral tradition, uh, both of those words, he received gifts from among mankind, but also there are some that say he gave gifts from among mankind. And it's possible that the Apostle Paul had learned from one of these targums, these oral traditions, and so he's repeating what he had learned and understood. And that being the case, then I believe that God would allow for either word to be used. But, but I think the answer's a little more solid than that, if you're a little wobbly on that idea. That the, the gave versus received. He gave gifts to men, Ephesians 4, 8. He received gifts from among men, Psalm 68, 18. I believe the answer is in the text. Listen. Psalm 68 is a victory psalm, right? Of military triumph. So what happens for the victor? Spoils of war. They receive the gifts. And what do they do with the spoils of war? They give them. The spoils of war are received and given. Isn't that marvelous? So either one works. And in Genesis 14, verse 16, note this, Abraham brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possession and also the women and the people. It sounds like the spoils was all of that. Treasures and people. The spoils of war. What are you saying, Rick? Oh, Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He is the Lord, the Lord has anointed me, Jesus would quote this, to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And get this, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers are themselves spoils of war. We are all, my friends, spoils of war. For we have been set free. We have been released. And among all these gifts that are listed here in verse 10 and 11, these gifts speak of people who are gifts that were received by Jesus and now given by Jesus. 
Does that make sense to you all? Are you tracking me here? The gifts are received and they are given. Captive prisoners are received by Jesus, set free to then be given to equip the saints and to build up the body of Christ. And so it doesn't matter to me if you want to say gave or received because it works together. He received us as He saved us and He gives us having received us for the work of the ministry so long as we shall live. The beauty is that we have all in Jesus Christ, come out of captivity. We are all spoils of war. He bled and died on that battlefield of Calvary to set us free. Praise the Lord. He rescued us, Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So why are we still here in this earth, in this kingdom, at this day and age? Ah, because we have been sent to speak, to save, and to shepherd in this world. Gifts received and gifts given. And note that we will never again, any of us in Christ Jesus, descend into the lower parts of the earth. No, my friends, we will rise. Father, we will rise when You call us home. We will be caught up to Jesus to meet the Lord in the clouds and therefore we will forever be with the Lord. Your Word declares that to us. That that day is coming. But until then, You have given gifts, Lord. Father, there's, there's some among us this morning who do not believe themselves to be gifted. Who do not believe they have anything to offer today. Thankful perhaps at some level for being saved and getting to come to church, but, but oh Lord, I've got nothing that I can personally give. Lord, I pray that You would silence that lie. Because if You have received us to Yourself, You have given us for the work of the body of Christ. That we all have something to give. Because we have received of the grace upon grace of Jesus. Lord Jesus, give confidence to each of us. Give enthusiasm and excitement to us, Lord, even as we follow You in this glorious march unto eternity. This this glorious victory that is already in the bag. We know this. That may we walk... Lord, as those who are gifted, not by ourselves, but gifted by You, received by You, and given by You until we will come home to be with You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never given your life, we talk about being received by Jesus You know how you're received by Jesus? You receive Him. You accept Him as Lord and Commander and as Savior of your life. And it is so simple. It's a a move of faith. It's saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that You died for me. And Lord Jesus, I believe that You rose from the dead. And I want to belong to You. It's that simple. And as we sing this song, before before we take communion together, we will in a moment, I invite you to come if you want to receive Jesus for the first time and to join in that march of victory right on into eternity.
you have any other thing that you need prayer for, we'll have people in all four corners of the building, and you can go for prayer as well. Let's worship Him, let's come to Him, and whatever your need is, please come as we sing.